0: Love Talk Radio.
1: It is the sixth day of May twenty twelve and I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. The um over the last couple shows I've been doing some broadcasts with uh with TJ Smith. He's done a, a great job of, of helping me out and, and giving another perspective. Although um we do share similar, you know, similar views on things. It's just nice to have a, a another mind in the pot if you will to um to really go through and and break down what you can see in society today. So unfortunately TJ won't be joining us today. I'll be anchoring this all by my lonesome and then uh we'll be taking next week off for Mother's Day and then returning the following week with the uh with the one-hour broadcast on Sunday. So the topic for the show today is the global economy, and I'm going to get into a lot of different aspects of the global economy as well as the um, the history of the debt-money system. I've got a lot of uh, supporting audio clips from very respected, highly intelligent economists to really break down for you what you're seeing in this nation today and amongst the nations of the world where the majority of this debt that's being created is actually not owed by the governments themselves their derivatives debts which are basically just bets that the big banks use in order for them to make bigger and bigger profits and they will typically bet anywhere from the range of ten to to 20 to 30 to 1 on um, on certain aspects of the economy, and when they lose their bets, much like John Corzine, where he made a 30 to 1 bet on the Euro, and they lose the bet, then they have to find a way to repay it. So I'm going to get into all of that. I'm going to cover the news and then uh, launch into the topic for the show. So... A couple of articles that caught my eye, this first one was um, was posted yesterday, and this comes out of Reuters, and it says, Egypt poses, imposes curfew and deploys uh, army after the protest. So after the United States went in and overthrew their dictator, they then put the military in charge, and so what you're seeing now – is they've got some elections coming up in the next couple of days. It's um, the 23rd and the 24th to enne- elect their new leader. So this time the United States isn't going to plug in their puppet and, and go through the rigmarole that we did last time. Uh, we're actually going to let them have some free elections, which is, which is pretty exciting. Uh, other than the fact that you have the big clash right now between the army and the protesters, And the protesters understand what's going on. They're on the ground floor. They're not here in the United States and and don't get a slanted view of of what's going on in their country. They're actually living it. So just to quote from the article, and you'll be able to read all of these. They will be posted on my site, um, www.wearenotcattle.net, after the broadcast with um, hyperlinks, as always, to the articles I reference on the show. But back to the article, it says many of the protesters have called for the army to step aside uh, sooner than planned. Scenes of troops beating protesters with sticks in anti-army demonstrations in recent months have angered many Egyptians. Well, yeah, guess what? That's um, This is all going to be coming here if we don't fix our financial scenario. Who expect the generals to wield their influence from behind the scenes and even after the formal handover? And it goes on to say, but many of Egyptians are equally frustrated. The protesters accusing them of stirring up trouble in the streets and helping drive the economy to the brink of the balance of the payments crisis, and the national foreign reserves have plunged. So, what does this all mean? So, in an instance like this, where you have civil—I won't want to call it civil unrest, but that's what it borders on. When you have something like this, you're going to have provocateurs that are put in there by either the the current system, which in this case would be the military for Egypt, and then you're also going to have the blowback from from the army being in charge and beating protesters and, and things of that nature. So when it really gets down to it, uh, it's an interesting thing to watch. Because when you're watching it from 30,000 feet like we are here in the United States, you're going to see what actually does happen through a financial collapse that could be headed to the United States. It already is underway in Europe, and they're scrambling, trying to repair something that they'll never be able to pay back because the derivatives debt that the EU owes and each individual nation owes is just too much to bear. It's it's a product of the banking system, and it's a product of the banking cartels, um, such as your J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, your other big banks, Wachovia, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, which is actually in the news today. People are protesting the Bank of America, and rightfully they should because the United States has been conquered by banks, and we'll get into that here in a minute. So, diving into a little bit more news. This article is, um, is going to be linked on my site as well, and it talks about drones patrolling the Washington state border. And just an excerpt from the article, it says unmanned aircraft that can stay up in the air for 20 hours at a time, something that no other aircraft in the federal inventory can do, is, um, are going to be controlling the border of Washington state and even flying into the U.S. This is along Washington state and Canada. And it goes on to say, in this matter of the force multiplier providing aerial surveillance to support border agents by investigating sensor activity in remote areas and distinguish between real and perceived threats, allowing boots on the ground force to better allocate their resources and efforts. This is what myself and a lot of other people have called for in the past. I don't want drones surveilling the people, if you will, but I want drones on the front lines of the border where they have the border wide open in certain areas now they do it on the canadian border the reason they can't do it on the mexican border is that the us government is making too much money on the drug trafficking so we have to we have to leave the mexican border wide open whereas in these other borders we can we can deploy the the proper facilities and the proper capabilities in order to better control the border And there have been a couple of um, civil liberties unions coming out against this. Which I can see their point as well. It's a large step to a closer surveillance society, and every move is monitored, tracked, traced, and recorded and scrutinized by the authorities. Guys, this is already going on now. I don't know why everybody's getting hyped up. This has been going on since the Patriot Act, and and you're starting to see a large segment of the population waking up to this and saying, wait a minute. I don't like being tracked, traced, surveilled. I don't like the government knowing where I'm going. That's not freedom. That's serfdom. So once again, you do have – you do have the the proper elements in place, if you will. You do have the proper elements in place, but you also are really walking that tightrope of if you're letting these drones weave in and out of residential areas, stuff like that. Now you're running into you're running into some civil liberties violations, and and that's where I draw the line. If you keep them to the border, it's great. If you start bringing them in to surveil the people, like they've been doing with the blimps and that that's really crossing the line. So moving on, the um the next article is um is titled the EU plot to scrap Britain and this was um this is a very short article but um it really does power pack what what the what the ruling elite are trying to do and what they've been talking about doing for forever and a year. And it just seems like now the population is waking up to it, and also you have the mainstream media admitting that this is actually going on when it's something that's been discussed years and years and years over. When you hear world leaders talk about uh, the New World Order or they talk about global government, this is what they're talking about. And the article cites, and it says, senior Eurocrats are secretly plotting to create a superpower EU president to realize their dream of abolishing England. Now, what does this mean? What they're trying to do in the grand scheme of things, and this has been this has been documented many times over, and if you really want to find the um the hardcore research, you can um you can go on my site and watch a couple of the documentaries that I have posted there under my documentaries tab. Uh one of them that is very good is I entitled it one world, one ruling class which is in essence the the plan for global governance and the plan for global governance is to break up the world into geographic regions and then appoint heads of those regions that then will sit on the world council and then the world council will make decisions for the planet based on what they believe is best suited for the planet so europe is trying this and this is interesting because i'd like to see how the European population is going to push back against this because this is very tyrannical in the fact that they're going to, instead of having the European Union, they're going to try to try to make it like the United States in the fact that they will deprive every individual nation of their sovereignty and pluck it away from them and give all the, the power to this EU president. And then I'm assuming that what they're going to move forward with is talking about how they need to restructure the euro, and they're going to have to go to a one-world currency, and that's why you're seeing all of our currencies plummet at the same time is because this has been a planned demolition for many, many years. And they're finally getting to the final stages where they've gotten the country under enough debt and the nation's under enough debt where they can start manipulating the people that make the laws because the the banks are in control. So great article to read. It's very short, but um, really just really just give it the once-over once I plug this stuff on my site. Uh, the next article I want to cover is uh, Texas Passes an Abstinence-Based Gateway Sexual Activity Bill. Now, this bill that they just passed, and I'm going to read you a, a quote from the article, and then I'm going to expand on it. It says the, the state has passed a long mock bill allowing parents to sue teachers and other parties for promoting or condoning gateway sexual activity by students. So what do they consider gateway sexual activity by students? Well, hand-holding, hugging, kissing, these are all quote-unquote gateway sexual activities. And it says it is a controversial measure and is intended to curb teen pregnancy – and is an offshoot of the state's growing abstinence based sexual education program and supporters of the bill in tennessee schools say that tennessee has to do something once again this is the parents not taking the responsibility for themselves to teach their kids about sex and about abstinence it's on the state to do it so as you can see us transition more and more into a society that is not allowing the people to govern their children it is allowing the government to set the regulations for the children and set the laws and, and, and teach the children these certain things it's like the article that I read about the, the children in Chicago that were going to school with brown bag lunches and they would get to school, and they would have like a cheese sandwich, some cheese sticks, um, some vegetables in there, and the bureaucrats would come up and say nope that is that is not healthy. We need you to to eat the school food. We need you to eat the processed chicken nuggets, which if anybody has done any research on chicken nuggets, if it is deplorable how they're made and um if you eat chicken nuggets now and you want to find out how they're made i'm pretty sure that you won't eat them anymore so keep that in mind before you start doing your research but once again this is the bureaucracy lecturing from 30,000 feet what we need to do and it's the you know it is the indoctr- indoctrination of the united states where the parents have no control and the state gets to control the kids So you can't spank your kids in public, and I say this a lot, you can't spank your kids in public, but yet we can give your kid um, shock therapy because he won't take his coat off. And I played that clip for you guys last time, and if you want to check it out, you can look under the archives tab on my website and pull up the the broadcast from last week. So moving on, this is an article by MSNBC by – This is just so funny. I'll just read you the headline for the article, and it says civilized people don't buy gold. That's correct. You don't buy gold if you're civilized and understand that gold has had about a 10 to 15% appreciation every year over the last 10 years, and it has grown at a steady pace alongside the dollar, which is depreciated, that is a discussion we don't need to have. You need to give your money to Brookshire Hathaway. You need to give your money to the big bankers and let them do it. And it goes on to say in the article that gold is a great thing to sew into your garments if you're a Jewish family in Vienna in 1939, the Brookshire Hathaway vice chairman said. But civilized people don't buy gold. They invest in productive business. That's right. You and you don't buy something that's a tangible asset in case your fiat currency, like what happened in, in Egypt, gets destroyed or what's happening over in Spain or what's happened in Ireland. You don't invest in a tangible asset that has intrinsic value. You need to invest in the Ponzi scheme. You need to invest in our system of controlling money because if we can control and manipulate the currency – and we have your money in our little actuaries, then we control the legislation. They control everything. So once again, this is just a big push by you know the people like the Bernie Madoff types and and those guys that want you to buy into the the facade that that the economy is this creature and that they know how to control it and they know how to allocate your funds and that you are the dumb little civilians that don't really know how to invest your own money. Now, I personally have some silver. I don't have a ton, but once again, it's the it's the great contingency plan because if, if your dollar gets destroyed or your currency gets destroyed, you're going to go to a, a barter system, and, and those are things that are easily bartered because they've always had intrinsic value. So moving on, we do have – and this really does – Transition right into the topic for the show, and it is the 86 the 86 million invisible unemployed, and this is a CNN Money article that came out a couple of days ago, and it actually has a nice little graph and a chart on it, and if you guys are listening um, via Blog Talk Radio, you'll see a couple of um, scrolling pictures that um, that I put on there instead of just my – just my um my home picture, if you will that um, that really do depict a couple of different things that I'll get into later, but um I should put this invisible unemployed graph up there because it's it's absolutely astonishing and the article says as a result, the labor force is now the smallest it's been since nineteen eighty, and I think I saw something on Drudge on this just this morning as compared to the the broadened working age of the population. It says that we've been getting some job growth, but it hasn't been significant and hasn't been yet strong enough that you can start getting people to reengage in the labor market. So – and that was by the former commissioner of the Bureau of Labor
0: Statistics.
1: So once again, they tote the line that there is the 9.3% unemployment or whatever fake numbers they want to come out with this week. But then again, it does discount these 86 million Invisible Unemployed, and it goes on in the article to say a person is counted as part of the labor force if they have had a job or have looked for a job in the last four weeks. And as of April, only 63.6% of Americans over the age of 16 fell into this category, according to the Department of Labor, and that is the lowest labor force participation rate since 1981. Now, that being said… Let's talk about, and I'm going to set this up pretty well, let's talk about the position that we're in now, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the past. Well, the position that we're in now at the United States is we have an extremely large debt bubble, and it's brought on by a multitude of things, but you're going to see the talk now of of the student loan debt. Now, the student loan debt bubble is going to be the next bubble to burst because, remember, in fractional reserve banking, they can create booms and busts by depending on how much money is in the money supply. Remember, the overall driving factor of what drives an economy and what creates wealth is not what the currency is backed on. It doesn't matter if you back a currency with paperclips. It doesn't matter if you back a currency with gold. It doesn't matter if you back a currency with coat hangers. As long as the people believe that there is some intrinsic value in the money and the money supply is limited, then you actually have a currency that you can utilize and you can stabilize inflation, deflation, and those types of things. What we have currently is a debt-based system. And now what I want to talk about is the history of the debt-based system, the history of of currency in general, why why certain economies have flourished and why certain economies fall short, and it typically always boils down to one simple ratio, and that is the people versus the bankers. Now, the bankers will always print money that is going to benefit them. The people always want hardened money that will benefit the people, the population, and you will see prosperous growth throughout the the history of throughout the history of the country or that particular economy so I'm going to start it off with a audio clip for why Rome flourished and then I'll expand on this a little bit but just to give you a background once again Rome is a great barometer for what goes on in the United States both set up very similarly and now we're both headed down the exact same path and when Julius Caesar took power, not to get too far off a topic, and my wife and I discussed this yesterday, Julius Caesar came to power because he he refused the he played he played the role of the unwilling leader. He refused the crown two or three times over. I can't remember, but then neglectedly accepted it. I don't know if that was a proper term back there, but you know appeared like he didn't want the power when he actually did and then he started coining gold money and consolidated power and then made the senate somewhat of a a non-contributor to the society or basically just a um no nah, just I can't even think of a great term for it, but they just made them ceremonial for the most part. So here's the clip on Rome's money supply, and then I'll dive into that in a little bit.
2: Without the use of either gold or silver, Rome became mistress of commerce of the world. Her people were the bravest, the most prosperous, the most happy, for they knew no grinding poverty. Her money was issued directly to the people, and it was composed of a cheap material, copper and brass, based alone upon the faith and credit of the nation. With this abundant money supply, she built her magnificent courts and temples. She distributed her lands among the people in small holdings, and wealth poured into the coffers of Rome.
0: Okay,
1: so what does that mean? That means that if you can get the government to and a lot of people get afraid when you when you hear this but it's really the only way to control inflation deflation and the amount of money in the money supply if you get congress to issue the currency much like rome did where it's it's issued on repayment or it's issued with the bearings that the government will back the currency currently we don't have a government backed currency we have a facade currency which runs through the private Federal Reserve banking cartel. So if you have the government issue the currency, then you have a multitude of things that can go on. You can actually have governments fund specific municipality jobs by creating the potential money out of, out of their debt books and then hiring independent agencies to do the specific job of the um, – I in the municipality, let's say they want to build a bridge and then they can actually, you know, fund the bridge straight from the government using bonds and so forth. And then once the, once the project is finished and everybody is paid out and the bonds are paid back, then you can wipe the debt off the books completely and there's no interest involved. Remember, interest is the thing that has put us into this situation and it's been put – we've been put there by the big banks. Now – when you hear the big banks, everybody thinks the Occupy Wall Street. well, Occupy Wall Street is almost there in the fact that they talk about the one percent when it 's not really the one percent those are the people that actually create the jobs it 's the one percent of the one percent it 's the people at the the very top of the pyramid that use their money and power that they 've had for generations upon generations, like the Warren Buffetts and the the rockefellers and and people like that that use their money and influence to get legislation passed to where they're exempt from all these tax laws and then they utilize those tax laws to then sick the lower class onto the middle class which everyone knows that in a in an economic stable economic society and a prosperous economic society the middle class is key and what we're seeing in the United States is we're seeing a slow deterioration of the middle class. So to get in a little bit more on the debt money system, I have a clip for you here. And a couple of these clips are from the show called The Secret of Oz. And it is on my website. It's under my documentaries tab. If you guys want a crash course on debt based money, I highly recommend you watch it because uh, Bill Still does a great job encapsulating where we are today and how we got here. So here's a short clip on the debt money system to
0: explain it a little bit further. So what is the national debt? When government spends more than it collects in taxes, it has to borrow the difference by selling interest-bearing IOUs such as U.S. bonds. When a U.S. bank buys a $100 U.S. bond, it gets to loan out ten times that amount. So the bank not only gets back the $100 plus interest from the federal government, it gets to loan out another $1,000 it doesn't have and charge additional interest. Banks are allowed to create this extra money out of thin air. So banks aren't making only 6% interest for example, they are really making over 1,000% interest. That's why bank buildings are the biggest in every town on the planet. This system of lending way more than you have is called fractional reserve lending. Almost all our money is created by banks lending it to people, to companies, or to government.
1: So he's exactly right when you have the big banks lending money to the people, the government, and the other entities, like corporations, and they get charged interest the the banks actually make those that money out of thin air it actually becomes a a debt that you owe to the bank, and they just put the money on their books as a debt so um, I actually had some audio from that in a in a prior in a prior show, and if you guys want to pull it up, um I think it was back in May, but i'm going to charge forward just a little bit and talk about um what you can see and what you need to know about fractional reserve banking and one of the key components to fractional reserve banking and how they've kept the public at bay is they use um they use financial tricks on the public they will explain things that are that seem very simple but in reality they're pretty complex Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is um, the exponential function or an increased amount, a specifically increased amount over a duration. So let's say that there is 3% interest over over 30 years. The majority of people, if I ask them to draw a line of what 3% interest would look like… They would typically, if you can um, envision in your mind's eye an x y axis, they would take the pen and draw about a forty five degree angle all the way across the plate all the way across the page. when in actuality, it looks more like a sea jump. it looks more like something that starts out very slow at the bottom and then heads almost vertical after a certain amount of time, which is called the doubling time and if you are watching my show right now and you are seeing the scrolling pictures you will actually see a a picture of what um the exponential function looks like and it looks exactly like our debt to gdp ratio and there's a reason for that so here's the here's a clip that explains the doubling time in a in a manner which you you will be able to understand and then when you hear when you hear The economists talk about a certain percentage of growth over X amount of time. Now instead of seeing that straight 45 degree angle line in your head, you will be able to really depict what's going on and where it becomes a problem and after how long will it become a severe problem like what we are facing currently.
3: Well, it's a real pleasure to be here and to have a chance just to meet with you and talk about some of the problems that we're facing. Now, some of these problems are local, some are national, some are global. But they're all tied together. They're tied together with arithmetic, and the arithmetic isn't very difficult. Now, what I hope to do is, I hope to be able to convince you that the greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. So you say, well, what's the exponential function? This is a mathematical function that you would write down if you're going to describe the size of anything that was growing steadily. If you had something growing 5% per year, you'd write the exponential function to show how large that growing quantity was year after year. And so we're talking about a situation where the time that's required for the growing quantity to increase by a fixed fraction is a constant. 5% per year, the 5% is a fixed fraction, the per year is a fixed length of time. Now, that's what we want to talk about, it's ordinary steady growth. Well, if it takes a fixed length of time to grow 5%, it follows it takes a longer fixed length of time to grow 100%. Now that longer time is called the doubling time. We need to know how you calculate the doubling time, and it's easy. You just take the number 70, divide it by the percent growth per unit time, and that gives you the doubling time. So our example of 5% per year, you divide the 5 into 70, you find that growing quantity will double in size every 14 years. Well, you might ask, where did the 70 come from? The answer is it's approximately 100 multiplied by the natural logarithm of 2. If you wanted the time to triple, you'd use the natural logarithm of 3, so it's all very logical. But you don't have to remember where it came from if you'll just remember 70. Now, I wish we could get every person to make this mental calculation every time we see a percent growth rate of anything in a news story. For example, if you saw a story that said things have been growing 7% per year for several recent years, you wouldn't bat an eyelash. But when you see a headline that says crime has doubled in a decade, you say, my heavens, what's happening? Well, what is happening? 7% growth per year. Divide the 7 into 70, the doubling time is 10 years. But notice, if you're going to write a headline, you never write crime growing 7% per year because most people wouldn't know what it really means.
1: So hopefully that makes a lot of sense to to my listening audience. Um, When you hear Ben Bernanke talk about 3% inflation or you hear him talk about 5% inflation or what have you, it um, it really does look like a ski jump instead of the straight line. And what does that mean? Well, that means that in our money supply, once again, the amount of money or the amount of worth that your dollar has is indicative of how much money is in circulation. So any time that the fed prints more money or any time our us government borrows money from the fed to put into the money supply aka stimulus then you're actually increasing the money supply which is in or decreasing the value of your purchasing power thus decreasing the power of your dollar and also it's stealing wealth because if you increase at an inflation rate of 3% then your dollar is losing value because not only do you have to pay back any loans that you have with interest, you actually have to put out more money to pay those loans back because your dollar has been devalued or your currency has been devalued. So it is a cyclical process that is very tough, and it's been the debate that's been going on for you know, nearly a hundred years now, when you have the Fed coming in and issuing the currency to the United States. So I'm going to go now to an interview that Bill Still did, and Bill Still is the author of the documentary The Secret of Oz. And I've got a a clip from him on the interview that really does encapsulate where we are. And then I have another couple of clips that we 'll get into here in a little bit that really do line out for us why we 're in this financial predicament and it 's not just the united states it 's a predicament that 's going on worldwide because the bankers are worldwide so here 's the interview with bill still
0: if you want to if you want to really uh, get to the very uh, the basics of what 's going on here, uh, look at the past thousand years of human. Uh, history it has it, politically speaking it has been the struggle of humanity to escape serfdom. What is serfdom uh, that's that 's basically that there 's no class mobility that all all the money is controlled by in very few hands, and that the rest of us essentially uh, work as slaves so that that 's what certainly the history of political development in Great Britain and Europe in general has been it's that, that uh, people form together, uh, come together, and corporately, just like the, the little field mice and the Wizard of Oz analogy. Corporately, uh, together, uh, we can form uh, a government of self-determination, and thereby hold the money changers at bay. You know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, for eliminating the rich people or re- eliminating capitalism or anything like that. I think capitalism if it's If it's actually incentive driven and uh, not not where a uh, very few people have an unfair a monopoly on money is a very good thing because incentives make you work harder, incentives keep you slim and sleek and and that's all a, a good thing but uh you know, what the problem is at this point is that the money changers have have run this thousand year battle with the rest of humanity trying to <coughs> eliminate these democratic reforms uh you know that that have taken place for example the the magna carta in great britain in the 1200s you know and this that was the foundation for the american constitution which of course to date is the highest expression of uh human freedom for the middle class in any case uh that there's ever been and uh, what what that means is you know, we can now have social mobility. The power pyramid is very broad. It's easier through your own hard work and efforts for you to actually uh, climb the social pyramid. In other words, you can have class mobility. You can you can um, create wealth for yourself and your family that you can pass on. Um, that's what the money changers don't like. They don't like that broad-based pyramid of human power. They don't like people actually being – having uh, – some semblance of control over their destinies, and that's what they're trying to eliminate uh, right now with this central bank scam and the debt money system that it rides upon, which is uh, choking the life out of uh, democratic nations worldwide. Yeah, and
2: uh, maybe you can help us understand.
1: So that's a... um that's an interview with bill still and he um he really does hit it right out of the park and he talks about that this is a this is an issue that's been going on for for hundreds if not thousands of years where you have a select few that controls once again the the supply of money in the system and if you can much like lord rothschild said if you can control a country's currency you care not who makes its laws because if you can control the amount of of goods and services that people can buy just by sheerly controlling the amount of money in circulation, you have all the power in the world for the most part. And you can go to the government, and you can demand certain things, and you can even demand that the government gives your subsidiaries certain contracts, much like when I had the uh, the clip from – the gentleman that wrote Tales, Confessions of an Economic Hitman where he talked about his job was to go to third world countries and position the lender, whether it was the the, um, the World Bank or whomever. He would position the lender to the country and say, we'll give you X amount of dollars to build roads, infrastructure, um, things of that nature. And then the country would sign off on this. Well, the trick was, let's say that you give the country a a, a half-a-billion-dollar contract. You give them um, $500 million in in a loan, and that um, they have to repay it at X amount of interest. And the caveats tied to it are either you pay us back or we're going to um, buy your natural resources up for pennies on the dollar if you default – or we want you to vote with us on the next EU referendum or or something like that where there has to be some kind of of barter and trade between the two parties so once the once the third world country signed on to that particular that particular loan whatever it may be instead of giving the 500 million dollars to the The companies that were in in existence in the third world countries, then what they would do is they would bring in the American companies or the global companies and give the contracts to them. So in essence, they would create this money out of thin air. They would create the $500 million and then tie on the third world countries' assets to it or strong-arm them into voting for some EU referendum. And then once again, instead of the money going to the third world countries to help their infrastructure and to help their economy, it's given to the subsidiaries of the large banks that will typically own all different facets of industry, whether it's, whether it's coal, whether it's construction, whatever and they just divvy out the contract to their specific subcontractors. So in essence, they loan the money out for, for $500 million, collect interest on it, but then they just funnel the money back through their subsidiaries, and make more money on top of that. So in essence the money never really leaves them. They they have a a loan out to a country with a with no liability to them because once again their subsidiaries get all the contracts so the money doesn't really go anywhere and they just collect on the interest. And then when the country defaults or they don't agree to the terms, either the person is taken out or they just um stage an overthrow of the government and have them removed from power. So this is what we're facing as as a um as a nation currently and as um as society as a whole, as humanity. We are we're under control of the bankers. And this government that you have in the United States, although you have great people in the government, the the government overall is is going to be JP, JP Morgan, you know, all of the big players, JP Morgan Chase, you know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Wachovia—those are the guys that are really pulling the strings because they can, they can fund the Congress people. They can give them donations. They hire lobbyists to make sure that they vote for certain, make sure they vote for certain bills to pass. So, you really are seeing corruption at at a at an extremely high level in in Washington D.C. And then, if you really look at who's running these specific branches of the government, if you look at – just do do yourself a favor if you don't believe the stuff that I'm telling you. Once again, the reason that I got so passionate about this is because I tried to go prove all this stuff wrong, and I ended up proving it the opposite. I actually proved it 100% right. Go look up the history of Goldman Sachs in the United States, from the Treasury Secretary to, to Ben Bernanke running the Fed. Just look up the history of Goldman Sachs in the United States, and you will see – mountains upon mountains of evidence that um that the united states will will obviously just plug and chug people of um of high rank from goldman sachs into the um into the commanding into the commanding you know commanding posts of the um of the us government as far as the money goes so here's another Um, clip, like I said, I'm going to bombard you with clips because these are the people that, that really truly do understand this and they're much more eloquent speakers than I am so here's another clip about what's really killing the United States and the world economy and it's something that I've hinted on but I really want to expand on it so here's what's really hurting
0: us. Well it's no secret to any American that we're living in very precarious times Americans are being robbed blind and they don't even know who's doing the robbing
2: I mean, we clearly are, you know, in a bus and we're heading for the edge of a cliff. And there still is probably time to change course. The only problem is the people driving the bus don't realize that there's a cliff there yet.
0: If the problem that's uh, grinding the economy to a halt is too much debt, and if nobody in the government... And either party is looking at solving the debt problem, then the answer is it's going to go uh, to, into a depression as far as the eye can see.
2: And so we're going to have a massive, massive uh, recession, or let's call it a depression, while the economy rebalances away from a service sector economy towards a good producing economy, away from a borrow and spend economy to a save and produce economy. That's what we need to do. We can't get from where we are. To where we need to be without a severe depression.
0: What can government do? The sad answer is under our current monetary system, nothing. It's not going to get any better until the root cause of the problem is understood and addressed. There isn't enough stimulus money in the entire world to get us out of this hole. Why? Debt. The national debt is just like our consumer debt, it's the interest that's killing us.
1: So once again, it's the interest that really puts us behind the eight ball, and I have another clip here from um, – this is actually not him quoting directly, but some man reading his exact quote, and this is from Robert Hemphill who was the credit manager of the of the Federal Reserve here in Atlanta, Georgia. And this is what he said and this was way back. This was over 50 60 years ago when he when he brought this to light and this is something that we all need to think about. And then on the other side I'm going to bring up another Peter Schiff quote and then um, touch on a couple of different things as far as the Fed goes, and then I'm going to give you guys some solutions to our issues and um, and what we can do that will possibly right the ship if it's not so far sailed
0: yet. Seventy-five years ago, an employee of the Atlanta Federal Reserve explained the importance of the debt money system and how it can strangle our economy someone has to borrow every dollar we have in circulation. If the banks create ample money, we are prosperous. If not, we starve. When one gets a complete grasp of the picture, the tragic absurdity of our hopeless position is incredible. It is the most important subject intelligent persons can investigate and reflect upon.
1: So that was um, Robert Hemphill's exact words, um, and once again, he was a credit manager at the Federal Reserve here in Atlanta. So once again, it really does get down to the amount of money in circulation, and when you hear um, Ben Bernanke talk about how he's going to launch QE3 and how QE1 and QE2, those are called, um, for those that don't know, those are the quantitative easing is um, is the expanded version for QE, which in essence means they're going to print more money and put it into circulation and as i touched on before when you're adding money to the money supply it devalues your current currency and that's why if you look back at history um... i believe it was a little over a year ago where we had the battle between the dollar and the e-u and excuse me the dollar and the euro one day the dollar would be up the next day the euro would be up one day the euro would be up and the next day the dollar would be up and what they were doing was, in essence, they were playing the two sides off against each other and getting the public to pay attention to to the uh, to the shell game instead of paying attention to the real problem. And that's what I wanted to really get into towards my idea of solutions. Now, the one thing that we do run into as a nation today is we are as a nation probably the most distracted the most dumbed down society that has probably ever existed in a civilized world where or you want to call it a first world country we are distracted by the bread and circus of the NFL for the men that want the the man opera, if you will, the, the man soap opera of the NFL, the week-to-week, and then the other sports do the fill-ins, or you get people passionate about sports. Or you have something else. You have people that are entrenched in reality TV, and then you have people that are just completely ignoring the situation at hand where they say that I don't really get into politics. Now that to me is very scary. I was not one for politics. I really wasn't. But when you start talking about I'm going to lose all my money, that's where I started really paying attention to this stuff. And if you look back at history and you start doing the research and you start looking at 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 nations that did very well, and you look at nations that have been driven into poverty, there's a correlation between the two, and it typically comes from a private bank loaning all the money in circulation, controlling the money supply. It's all about quality and control with these people. Now, the situation that we're currently in is the United States, amongst almost every nation in the entire world, has now been – conquered by the bankers this is not your government everyone this is not the united states anymore for the most part that's why you see all these abstract laws coming out and just ridiculous absurdity like the law like the article i read to you earlier about tennessee you know doing doing their abstinence based you know sexual activity bill this is this is what you're running into is that you have the people at the top that are in control. Once again, it's not the 1%. It's the 1% of the 1%. And what they've done is they've done a great job of distracting the public, once again, like Rome or you know, ancient Rome, bread and circus, that type of thing, while we get financially conquered in the background. And the way that we get financially conquered is that you have the Fed, which is a private bank, issuing our currency… And they issue it to these larger banks. Now, here's where the real, the real shady stuff happens. Now, you guys remember the banker bailouts, I'm sure. But what I bet you don't realize about the banker bailouts is that the majority of that money never made it to the economy. The majority of that money actually stayed in the, in the big banking coffers. And so what did they do? Well, they get this free money from the Fed at zero interest, and then they take that money and invest it into securities. They invest it into bonds. They invest it into things that have a guaranteed yield. So what do they do? Let's say that in a hypothetical situation, the bank of, the bank of We Are Not Cattle gets a million dollars from the government. Now, what they can do is they can go out and lend that million dollars to a bunch of individual creditors in good faith that those creditors are going to pay the not only pay the amount back in full, but pay it back in a timely manner and not incur penalties or not incur bad debt. Now, instead of doing that, the We Are Not Cattle Bank has the option of investing in a in a specific type of investment that is a guaranteed yield. Let's say for the sake of argument it's 3%. And let's say for the sake of argument that the amount of money that I'm going to lend this out at that million dollars, I'm going to lend it out at 5%. Now, obviously, I can make more money by lending out my million dollars at 5%, but it's not guaranteed. So what the big banks did is they took those huge, huge bailouts that they got, and instead of issuing out the money to the people, they hoarded it. And they invested it in guaranteed residuals or guaranteed you know, guaranteed increments like 3%. So in essence what happened is anytime you hear the word bailout, remember when they say bailout, that does not mean that the government owes them money. That means that the government signs you on, you the individual, myself, my wife, my parents, my family. It signs us on to the debt that the federal government takes on when you do a bailout. So in essence, the government goes to the Federal Reserve, and they they request this amount of money. And then the Federal Reserve says, okay, we will lend you the money. Present us with collateral, and the collateral is the people. So we're stuck holding the tab. And then they give the money, which the Fed created out of thin air – And probably just a bunch of ones and zeros. They give it to the government or actually they don't even have to go to the government if they don't want to. The government just says okay divvy it up between these institutions and then they divvy it up and now the American public are stuck holding the tab. Now banker bailouts are something that is not new but it's new to this, I would say it's new to to the people in my generation. You know we did have bailouts before with amtrak and and a couple of banks you know back in the day where the banks were once again too big to fail, and they went out lending money that were questionable loans, and when the questionable loans defaulted, then they had to go to the government and say that if we don't get bailed out or if we don't have help paying our bills, we're going to default, and the economy is going to collapse. It's always the economy is going to collapse if – now, the last banking cartel that came to the United States government and said that we need to be bailed out or there's going to be financial collapse took it a step further. And behind closed doors were telling the United States senators and congressmen, you know, selectively of course, that if we don't get bailed out, that we you might see martial law in America – and actually, that's what I'll talk about on my next broadcast. And um, I believe TJ is going to be riding shotgun with me—not um, next week, but the week after. So we'll get into the martial law rollout in America, and and why you need to be concerned, and what you need to do in order to engage other people and get them to pay attention to what could come down the line. And we'll go across throughout history and just recap some of the martial law rollouts. Um, throughout other regimes in history. Once again, this stuff is not going to come as a blitzkrieg, if you will. It's not going to come get in your face you know, with guys in black uniforms pulling you out of your house and beating you. It's going to be a slow maturation. So I do want to get to this Peter Schiff quote. It's about a minute long, but it goes into what fractional reserve banking can do. And fractional reserve banking, once again, was created so that they can control inflation and deflation. Well, if they get things either too out of whack or if they get too aggressive, then you create some major issues and you create what are called booms and busts. And Peter Schiff goes
2: into that a little bit here in this quick clip. Why did we have a stock market bubble? You know, We had a stock market bubble because the Federal Reserve was too easy. They were too loose in the 1990s. Uh, money interest rates were too low we created too much money and uh, that fed the the investments in the stock market and we we had a lot of malinvestments right we had companies were created that never should have existed they were created not because they could generate a profit but because they could go public because investors wanted these stocks it didn't matter that they could make money so what did they do they took land labor and capital they took all the factors of production, and they combined them in ways that actually destroyed value. But it didn't matter because these companies got financing. The Fed made the financing cheap, so they were able to flourish. They were able to flourish despite the fact that they were losing money. You know, the old the, the saying used to be used to be they lose money on every sale, but they make it up on volume.
1: <laughs> I absolutely love that, Peter Schiff. Um, clip because it really does it really does speaks to the heart of what the what the real issue is and it's if the fed starts lending money at zero interest and then the banks get the money once again the banks aren't going to lend it to the people and he goes on to talk about how Companies used to go into business in order to go public in a big IPO, and then they would come out in this big IPO and get and sell their stock for you know something stupid. And this is back in the dot com days. Sell their stock for like you know thirty bucks a share, but they have no assets, no intrinsic value, no nothing they're bringing to bring the table other than the fact that they could sell basically fake stuff. You could sell air, and people would buy it because they thought it would appreciate. And it's just really taking advantage of the people that don't understand what really can drive economies and what really can be the detriment of society. So here is a clip, and this should almost wrap it up. Here is a clip from my favorite man, Mr. Greenspan, talking about the Fed and the private bank and how nobody can tell the Fed what the Fed can do. Nobody puts a baby in a corner evidently.
0: What should be the proper relationship between a chairman of the Fed and a president of the United States?
3: Well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency, and that means basically that uh, there is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. So long as that is in place and there is no evidence that the administration or the Congress or anybody else is uh, requesting that we do things other than what we think is the appropriate thing then what the relationships are uh, don't frankly matter and uh, I've had uh, very good relationships with the president
1: so there it is everyone that is your loving federal reserve telling you once again that the big banks they don't they're not responsible for you and I They're responsible for their profits. So once again, taking the week off next week, be sure to join us the week after. And also, if you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, be sure to follow me so you can get recent show updates and know if we do have schedule changes. Once again, get a friend, get informed, and get involved, everyone.